The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. Good afternoon, and welcome to the final seminar in this year's programme here at the Trinity Centre for Early Modern History. It's been a new experience for us hosting seminars in this virtual format, one we think that has gone very well this year, thanks to the quality of our speakers and to the engagement of our audiences. And I'm sure we'll have the same today. Today, it is my great honour to welcome back to Trinity, Professor Marjolein de Harsh from the University of Amsterdam. She'll be well known to many of you as a leading historian of early modern European state formation and urbanisation. She's perhaps best known for her books, The Dutch Wars of Independence, Warfare and Commerce in the Netherlands, 1570 to 1680, Routledge 2014, for the co-authored volume, Financial History of the Netherlands, 1550 to 1990. Um, But her published work ranges across economic, environmental, financial and urban history. And if one looks at the range of material, many of you would be familiar with some of this work. Is really quite extraordinary. And today's paper draws on some ongoing research and is entitled The Limits of Napoleon's Power, the Resilience of Dutch Overseas Trade Networks During the Continental System. And just before I hand over to our speaker, can I just remind you to please post any questions in the question and answer tab at the bottom of your screen so that I can post them to her after the paper is concluded. So any questions, post them in the Q&A tab the more questions, the better. And with that, I'm going to hand over to our speaker. Hello, everyone. And thank you, Patrick, for the kind words. And uh, I feel very, very honored that I may be part of this, uh, this webinar. Um, so I'm going to share my PowerPoint with you. Let me see, it's here. Okay, going to start it. Well, the uh, the title is indeed, as Patrick already told you, Limits of Napoleon's Powers, the Resilience of Dutch Overseas Trade Networks During the Continental System. This is part of, of, a, of a, a research that's going on uh, at my research institute and at the University of Antwerp that looks into uh, the resilient merchants in uh, uh, the Napoleonic and that is, that is of interest because usually this period is being looked upon as, as a, a period that was just a disaster, you know, for the for, for the continent, perhaps also as a whole, but uh, indeed very much also for, for the Netherlands that uh, was characterized by a very open trade system and uh, depended a lot of, uh, on, on, on seagoing trade and uh, the blockade imposed by Napoleon uh, all those uh, possibilities to do that. But this is a pamphlet that is being published in 1813, and uh, it's called The Sea is Open, Trade Revise. And you can see, of course, uh, the Englishman sitting there, but on his knee, he has a very, very fat Dutch merchant, as you can see. So this doesn't look as if this was such a, was such a terrible time. So let me just slow you, going to go going to the next slide and, uh, and, and, and repeat again that 
the Napoleon's continental blockade, which lasted from 1806 until 1813, was indeed devastating. Devastating above all for Amsterdam. Amsterdam in this time period really crumbled. It, it, it had been uh, one of the leading uh, centers for a long time, the leading financial center and, and trade center of, of the, well, the, the Western world. It was only recently being taken over more or less by Napoleon, but Amsterdam was still very powerful. Uh, the Dutch people at this time were per capita, the richest people of all the world. So that, that, that really uh, meant something. Um, but Amsterdam lost during the continental blockade its, uh, its colonial connection and uh, its, its, its intermediary position for, for a lot of, of, uh, of international trade. And it really declined the population uh, and uh, the rate of, of, of people on poor relief uh, increased rapidly up to 30% of the people in Amsterdam and decline, uh, uh, the, the, the town numbered about 200,000 inhabitants. Uh, the decline was at least 10%. So uh, people stopped going to Amsterdam and a lot of them left the town. But we can ask the question, was it as devastating also for the whole of the Netherlands? And was it also as devastating for, the Amsterdam, for all Amsterdam merchants? So our project that's called the Managing the Crisis, that looks in particular as those emergent networks in the Netherlands, uh, in particular focusing on Rotterdam, which is my colleague Johan Joor, and in Antwerp by uh, Hilde Greves and uh, PhD student Dirk Lüb. And Dirk just finished his, uh, his PhD thesis. So I can also show you today uh, some results of his work in this presentation. Let's first look at what happened to the Netherlands. If we look at uh, government finance, uh, we can really see that the Napoleonic period was, uh, was a disaster for, for the state. Um, although the Netherlands already had a, a, a very high degree of, of public debt, and you can see that uh, uh, up till, until 1794, 66% of the revenues, tax revenues were needed to, to service the debt, that was a situation that, that was quite normal for the Netherlands. But when you see when the French uh, invaded, uh, they imposed a lot of new loans. And uh, very soon, um, you can see all taxes that, that, that were collected, only 1% could be used for other issues uh, as compared to, to servicing the debt, because it, uh, it, it really Got, got, got really out of hand, and that was continued in the early 1800s, although it did improve a little bit uh, under uh, King Louis Napoleon. King Louis Napoleon was uh, the brother of Napoleon, and he was made King of the Netherlands in 1806. This graph shows the Dutch gross tonnage of vessels, and you can see that already by 18, 1800, it was already uh, declining since 1795, but you can see that the number of, of Dutch vessels that, uh, that, that were in operation was really, really reaching a very low, low point. And what is more, what you can see is that it took very long after 1813 before the Netherlands reached 
its uh, its its capacity. Uh, so it, it it was in the late 1830s. Uh, before that, uh, that was similar to 1800. But if we would take the period of 1795, then uh, it it uh, even take took longer to really recuperate. So indeed, these were very difficult times. I'm going to show you uh, a map because that's that's always handy to see uh, when 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 we are talking about uh, so the Netherlands. So we have the uh, Napoleonic Netherlands without southern provinces. We have in addition uh, East Frisia that uh, that was uh, added to the Netherlands. Amsterdam is here, and Rotterdam is here. So. There are a few more points I want to point out. Rotterdam is located not far from Antwerp, which is here. And then you have here to the, far, to, to the east of, of, uh, of Emden, uh, you have first Bremen, and then you have Hamburg. This was, this was the, uh, 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 the kingdom of, 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 the, uh, of, of, of the Netherlands under King Louis Napoleon. And Rotterdam, had been already being a, a major competitor for Amsterdam. It, it had far less inhabitants. It's a, about uh, a quarter of, of, of what Amsterdam had. It, it had about 56,000 inhabitants. Uh, it had its own boers. It had its own trade connections. But it, it had been rapidly increasing during the 18th century. So already before the Napoleonic period, Rotterdam was in competition with Amsterdam. And that is uh, important to know because this was an expanding town that was rapidly expanding. There are a couple of advantages that uh, were crucial uh, during the Napoleonic period. First of all, there was a kind of general shift going on in European trade. Before, uh, let's, let's say in the 18th century, trade had still been very much trade, uh, which was from Northern Europe to, to the Mediterranean, uh, from the Baltic to the Mediterranean, and, and, and Amsterdam was, was very convenient, conveniently located in between. But generally in the 18th century, you see a new, new major trade line uh, emerging, and that is more east-west. And that is the trade between Britain, uh, industrial, the newly industrializing power, and German and the German hinterland, the German hinterland that also started uh, developing rapidly uh, already during the time of, of Napoleon, but even more uh, in the early, in, in the later 19th century. Another aspect in which Rotterdam was better uh, uh, better positioned than Amsterdam was that uh, agriculture was booming. Uh, one can say all sectors in the Netherlands, industry, services, they declined, but the sector of agriculture was truly booming. And in this respect, Rotterdam was much better situated than Amsterdam because it was surrounded by, uh, to the south, the very rich province of Zeeland, which became more and more agricultural uh, in this time period. Uh, and uh, so the southern part of Holland, where you have, uh, uh, where Rotterdam was lo located. So in particular, dairy farming developed uh, rapidly and, and exports of butter and cheese did continue uh, throughout the Napoleonic period. And in, in that trade, it was not Amsterdam, because Amsterdam was oriented on 
on East India trade, on, on trade with, with the Mediterranean, with, with wine, with more luxury goods, but not with agricultural goods. Then Rotterdam had far uh, better connections to the Southern Netherlands. So Antwerp, Antwerp was, uh, had been a, a very powerful trading town uh, up until uh, the beginning of the Dutch Republic in the 16th century, but then with the, uh, with, with the emergence of, of the independent uh, Republic of the Netherlands, Antwerp was blockaded, but Napoleonic, uh, but, but the French were very, um, uh, very helpful for Antwerp because Antwerp restore, restored, could restore itself as as major international hub uh, under, uh, under French dominance. And that also stimulated Rotterdam trade. But there are also two other places, Breda and uh, uh, Bergen op Zoom. Perhaps you, you, you don't know them, but they are places in Brabant that played a crucial role. And I will explain that because this is a, a, a graph that is made by our stu PhD student in the, in, in the program, Dirk Lieb. And he studied uh, smuggling in the Antwerp, Antwerp region. And this smuggling was, was an affair that was quite different from previous smuggling in which you see a lot of petty smugglers or, or, or some, uh, some, some, some goods being traded in, in, in a coach. But this was really, uh, according to our PhD student, uh, first large scale, uh, um, uh, large scale organization in which you have suppliers, for instance, you have here, uh, uh, the uh, mer merchants, and here we have the principal. So let's say this is the supplier from Amsterdam or Rotterdam, and he goes to Brussels. Brussels. Then you have uh, a part in which you have the actual goods being transferred, and and that's first the goods are being stored in uh, the the warehouse of an intermediary, and. Uh, then it's being transported to depots like inns and, 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 and uh, barns of, of farmers in the border region. And uh, a, a large number of, of, of people carrying the goods over the border, which was, uh, which was a kind of rough countryside, uh, which, which was uh, sparsely populated and, and very difficult to, to cross. And then it would, would go into the, in, into the commission's warehouse here Important is that you did, so this is where the actual goods traded, but here you see the flow, the cash flow, and the information flows, and they were typically located in Breda, let me see, and Bergen op Zoom. That were the towns where you had the real, let's say, intermediaries of, of the major smuggling networks uh, uh, in the Napoleonic period. And this was real large, large scale business. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not kidding in, if I'm going to say that you could ensure your goods being trade, traded through smuggling uh, at, at a very regular way. It was even uh, when, when uh, a merchant was, was caught and was put before, before court, uh, it was possible that, that uh, well, the merchant would get a certain fine, but then the merchant could say, well, but I had to pay insurance for the goods in case they were captured. And he was then able to deduct the sums 
to, that were paid for the insurance uh, from his fine. So this was really regular business. I mean, it was illegal, but uh, it was it, it it had all kind of checks and balances and 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 the rules and regulations. You can see that when you have here, you have you have the Mer the Holland connection. You see that Rotterdam is very easily, uh, very well situated uh, for, for, for smuggling towards, well, Germany or the Southern Netherlands. Uh, oh, let me see. Um, then Amsterdam is, 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 is not, it's not bad, bad either, but you see that Rotterdam also had a very connection overseas and Amsterdam does not have a direct connection to the sea. This is only later that the canal was, was being dug here. So um, the, um, the goods that would come from Hamburg or Emden, they would go to Amsterdam or they could go directly to Rotterdam and then being passed over to the intermediaries. The merchants were here, the merchants were here, and here you had the intermediaries and here you had the people, the, the porters carrying the goods. And these were here, you had other intermediaries and other sides of, 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 the, of the border. So there were other, other uh, lines as well. So when this was difficult, the, um, the trade would, 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 would be shifted to this uh, line or to this line. So this, this, is, this, was, this is really recent material. This is all based upon uh, archives that were found in Paris from the Anti-Fraud Commission uh, uh, from Napoleon. It was particularly installed for, for combating uh, smuggling. And uh, these files uh, enabled uh, uh, our PhD student to reconstruct the networks because all the names, the, 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 the anti-fraud commissioners, they, they listed all the names of the networks of, of people who were, who were caught. And uh, that included very powerful merchants in Amsterdam and Rotterdam or in Brussels as well. So that were already some some major uh, major advantages of Rotterdam, but uh, there were other things. Um, in fact, Rotterdam had a much better connection to London as compared to Amsterdam. It, this sounds strange because London and Amsterdam were the two foremost financial centers, and you would think, well, they 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 had uh, the best connections. But um, by tradition, uh, a very strong. English merchant community lived in Rotterdam. So even so many British traders were li living in Rotterdam that the town was nicknamed Little London. So in the time of Napoleon, um, uh, the networks to, to the British, uh, to, to British trade, which, which British trade was expanding. So having the best connections to, the, to Britain was, was truly important. Uh, in addition, Rotterdam was much better able than Amsterdam to, to maintain connections overseas. We, we already noticed in this that Amsterdam did not have direct connections. They did have connections overseas, but you needed to go to the, uh, to the Zuiderzee, the South Sea, and then, but so that was much more difficult for Amsterdam, but Rotterdam uh, has had, uh, uh, was located at the Meuse, Estuary with a lot of smaller islands with Zeeland nearby, and you had a lot of small ports there. So it was very difficult for uh, the custom officers to to detect uh, ships that were 
uh, unloading at, for instance, Delfthaven or Brille or uh, Hellevoetsluis or, or Maasluis, all small places uh, uh, at the Meuse estuary. And then in addition, Rotterdam had a huge fishing community, much larger as compared to Amsterdam. And this fishing community, they had, uh, they, they, they were sailing in ships that you have here, a typical uh, herring fishery ship. They are very shallow, you can see that. So in this way, they can land at, uh, at, at, at very obscure harbors and, and actually all along the coast. And um, the fishermen um, were really um, uh, prohibited to, to, to continue with, with their trade because of, of, of kind of, uh, uh, well, they, 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 they were imposed all, all kind, kind of regulations. So uh, fishermen tried to find another living and that became more and more smuggling. And it became such a powerful uh, system in Rotterdam that um, uh, information between London and Rotterdam were very easily exchanged. A newspaper that was printed in London was to be had the next day in Rotterdam and vice versa. Uh, those herring ships didn't, didn't really carry a lot of good, but they carried a lot of information. So uh, letters and, and, and uh, bills of exchange and, uh, uh, and occasionally also uh, a lot of goods. Uh, but um, this was such a powerful line and, and everyone actually knew about it. And it is even known that Napoleon knew that this line existed and Napoleon knew, uh, used this connection, which was illegal and was, was not allowed at all, but to exchange, for instance, uh, prisoners or, or for diplomatic missions that, 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 that needed to keep, keep secret. So uh, every knew, everyone knew that it was there. So these were already quite a lot of advantages. And then there was a, a difference with the political structure of Amsterdam and Rotterdam. Amsterdam was a very powerful full, full city. And over time, uh, an oligarchy had started to dominate the urban government. And an oligarchy uh, more and more consisted of rentiers. So they were not active merchants anymore. But that was different in Rotterdam because this was a rising town. So people in the city, city council were merchants who were still very active in their trade. Meaning that the connection between merchants and political uh, and the political system through the urban network was much more uh, geared towards the interest of, 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 of well, of, of the active merchants themselves. Um, uh, there's a very good example also to show how the Rotterdam merchant uh, managed to maintain better connection to, to the Napoleonic regime because Napoleon wanted to install a chamber, chamber of commerce and Rotterdam knew that and before the French could take the initiative, they had established their own chamber of commerce, nominating, of course, the merchants they wanted to have there and that chamber of commerce uh, acted as, as uh, well as a kind of intermediary uh, trying to, to, to lobby. And Amsterdam was forced to install uh, a Chamber of Commerce and Amsterdam refused. Only in 1816, an Amsterdam Chamber of Commerce was established. And this, so, uh, this deprived the Amsterdam merchant community of a powerful lobbying network. 
So all in all, you can see that the attitude towards the new regime was in Rotterdam more like trying to be friends and in, and in the meantime, getting as much as possible from the new situation as you can. Whereas Amsterdam was constantly opposed to, to the Napoleonic regime. They, uh, they, 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 they obstructed all, uh, all, all, all new, new, uh, all new uh, regulations and rules as much as they could. So, but what did it, this did then mean for Amsterdam? Well, for a lot of Amsterdam merchants, this meant uh, it, 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 it's, it's remarkable that not so many firms really failed, more that a lot of, of uh, companies uh, decided, well, I just go out of business. I, I'm, I'm, go, I'm, I'm starting to be a rentier. Uh, uh, but not all did, and this is uh, uh, the house of, 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 a, of a powerful banking fa family, the Willings in Amsterdam at the Heerengracht. And the son of this powerful uh, uh, bank, bank family, Willem Willink, who became head of the bank, he was undoubtedly the, the wealthiest uh, uh, banker in Amsterdam at the time. He also occupied a very crucial position in city government with being secretary or being even burgomaster. And uh, the family of the Willings was very large. They had, they had several brothers and they all had their own uh, companies and their own banks. So we have Willem Willink. So dominating, uh, well, the attitude of the, of the Amsterdam government. But uh, in the meantime, uh, a large uh, number of ships arrived in the, in, in, in the Amsterdam uh, harbor in 1807 and two vessels were um, supposed to have uh, arrived from, um, from, 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 from the United States, so they were neutral, supposed to be neutral, but in reality they had come from Liverpool. And everyone knew that they were from Liverpool. And in addition, those ships carried sugar. And sugar was a prohibited uh, good because this was colonial products. And uh, by that time, it was well known that uh, the whole international sugar trade was really dominated by the British. So what happened was that uh, there were other ships uh, uh, that, uh, and, and then the merchants were apprehended. But the ship that was destined for Willem Willing, Willink didn't uh, nothing happened there. And really an outroar emer emerged in the harbor and uh, a lot of merchants were dissatisfied and, and claiming, well, what's going on? Why don't you apprehend Willem Willink? Willem Willink? And uh, this, it, it turned out that um, uh, the authorities simply didn't dare because Willem Willink was at the time heading a consortium that was busy in arranging a, a huge, a huge loan for Napoleon, 40 million guilders. And remarkable, when you see who the associates were in the consortium, you see also the name of Hope and Co. And it was feared that Willink would then uh, make public that Napoleon was dependent upon a British uh, banker and that uh, they, they couldn't face that. That, that humiliation. So they wanted to, to keep, keep quiet because Napoleon desperately needed the money from, um, for, from the, this consortium. So nothing happened with William Link and he simply remained in city government and he was never punished. So this is 
how Amsterdam fared. It is just to show you that a lot of people, both Australians had difficulties, but you still had people who managed to to gain from 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 from, from the from, from from the the new situation and and because and and also because people stepped out of business, this meant that you had a larger share again. So it is it it is kind of mixed. It is not that to say that all merchants did very poor. Some people really got a lot richer there. But that was even more the case in Rotterdam. I, I just I, I can't do too many examples, so I, I'm just taking uh, the example of Ezekiel's. Ezekiel's was uh, a merchant of very modest uh, background. He he started uh, with with trading in in uh, well in in textiles and uh, butter and wine. He even went bankrupt in 1799, but. Soon, already in 1801, he appeared uh, to be uh, a very, uh, well, a man with, with excellent connections. It was because he became an agent for Brownsberg & Co. And Brownsberg & Co. was a banking family that was located in Amsterdam. But Brownsberg & Co. could not trade directly to Britain, so they used an intermediary in Rotterdam, and this became Ezekiel's, for continuing the trade of Brownsberg & Co. with Britain. And Brownsberg & Co. had been assigned by um, the father of the famous Nathan Rothschild, who lived in, 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 in the German hinterland, as uh, he told his son, well, you should keep trading with Brownsburg and co because they are the best trustworthy people uh, and they uh, and, and, and they, they are they have the best best networks so you should should trade with if you want to trade on the continent use Brownsburg and co uh, Brownsburg and co uh, was another Amsterdam merchant he became the wealthiest mer uh, banker of Amsterdam uh, because Willem Wilding soon after uh, 1810 started to, to become a rentier himself. But Brownsberg & Co. then uh, turned out to have enriched himself enormously during the Napoleon period. But Ezekiel himself became an agent for Rothschild uh, also. And what they did in particular was speculation in specie and bullion. It was prohibited to, uh, to trade golden coins from, from Britain to the continent. It was absolutely not done, but it happened. And the people who were involved there were Brownsburg & Co., Rothschilds, and, uh, and Ezekiel's. So after uh, Napoleon left, Ezekiel's was the largest banker in Amsterdam. Uh, sorry, sorry, in Rotterdam, in Rotterdam. But uh, we studied a lot of other uh, trading families in Rotterdam, and, and we noticed that uh, uh, they, 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 they could more continue their trade networks as compared to, to the Amsterdam ones. And what you see also in Rotterdam, Rotterdam did not decline in population. It might even have increased a little bit. The, uh, the archives are not really clear on that, but it more or less stayed 57,000, 56,000 uh, inhabitants in this time period. So let me conclude then. Um, was there a crisis? Did the continental system imply uh, a crisis for the Netherlands? I think yes, it did. But it was a crisis that 
did also cause an economic shift in the Netherlands with the rise of Rotterdam, with the rise of new trade relations in which the international trade between East and West, between Britain and the German hinterland became, uh, became very important. Um, so in, 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 for instance, the, 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 the river trade, Rotterdam, uh, Amsterdam had always been the dominant uh, merchant town in, in the river trade uh, towards the German hinterland, but during this time period, Rotterdam superseded Amsterdam there. The story of what we know about this time period in the Netherlands is really, really only dominated by, by Amsterdam. We do know that agriculture did good, but we, that was actually the only positive thing that was usually said about this time period. But we now know that uh, uh, it really differed in, 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 in the Netherlands where you were based. And uh, uh, resilience in Rotterdam community was, 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 was much and much larger. I think the, the geographic conditions, the nearness to, to the uh, to, to, to major town like Antwerp and uh, Towns where you had the powerful intermediaries in the smuggling networks, the uh, possibility for, for, for herring fisheries, the Meuse estuary. So Rotterdam maintained much more for the, uh, its foreign trade links. And the hinterland was booming. The hinterland, let's then I mean uh, also South Holland itself with the agriculture that was booming. Uh, but also uh, the German hinterlands. And the political networks in Rotterdam could much more be used to the advantage of the, of the Rotterdam merchant community. There's also another thing to, to note that Willing, Braunsberg and Cohen Ezekiels, they do appear in the uh, archives that have been uh, researched by our PhD student Dirk Lüb. Uh, they were found by the Anti-Fraud Committee, uh, uh, of the French Anti-Fraud Committee. They were really named in person and they were brought before court, uh, willing, not, uh, willing for another case, but, but very short. But what is interesting now is that that French jurisdiction was a system that was really, you know, pretty good for people who are being accused. This was a, a jurisdiction in this time is, is a system in which you could, well, negotiate as, as I was telling. Well, you know, you, 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 you were only fined for the value of the goods that were caught, not, not for something else. And then you could deduct all, all costs for, you know, that, that you had, had made. Uh, uh, for 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 to to engage in smuggling, so it it is a kind of of contradiction that well, uh, jurisdiction was, was was much better organized, but it was also a system that well was pretty kind for those merchants because they were fined, you know. But that, so those fines didn't really really matter that much. So. In the end, was all trade as normal? No, not all trade was normal. It, it has been told by uh, some people assumed well uh, that uh, during the continental system, smuggling enabled trade to, to continue as usual. But uh, the famous scholar Francois Crozet already told that well, uh, smuggling only uh, was able to take up one one minor part of it. So trade was not as usual. But you, there was 
new trade going on. There was much more financial services, much more Dutch acting as intermediaries. Uh, and what was also very important to know is, is, is this was a period of de-urbanization in the Netherlands. The Netherlands had been urbanizing all the time since the late 16th century, but um, during under Napoleon, there was a de-urbanization going on. This was mainly caused by the, the population of Amsterdam and another town like Middelburg. So, uh, and the wealth was shifted out of Amsterdam more to Rotterdam, but also to eastern parts of the Netherlands. And uh, so that that was may, maybe I'm 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 just 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 so sorry for being a bit confusing here because this is some new information that I really didn't discuss before. But I, I'd like to conclude that well, um, had the Napoleonic period not occurred, I don't think the Netherlands would really uh, have been able to uh, to to rise again like like powerful for, for, for nation because centralization was, was really something that was needed and only under the French regime, uh, the Dutch got a much got better government, a much better jurisdiction, a much better central uh, central administration. So without that, uh, I think, um, uh, well, so this is, uh, this is ju just, just some thoughts uh, for, 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 for later, what happened later in, in the 19th century, but um, so, well, the continental system had its really uh, brought really hardship, but there were also advantageous points to be noted in the imposition of this strict rule by Napoleon. Well, going to stop sharing now. Let me see. Thank you. That was absolutely wonderful. And I think just ranged a whole range of questions. And I've numbered myself and I can see there are other ones coming in. What I'm struck by is your conclusion, in a sense, that war, occupation and war as a catalyst for sort of Dutch development. And I suppose I'm partly curious in terms of what the reaction to those sort of findings has been. But I suppose there are two questions that I wanted to start with really related to smuggling. And I think the I loved the smuggling graph from the PhD student. I think that's magnificent. And I love the way he's characterized that. Um, one of the things that struck me is, and one of the I suppose a point that you were making there, just in your conclusion, particularly, about do you have a sense in terms of the French jurisdiction and the ways in which people could negotiate, weren't they essentially pricing into their smuggling enterprises the assumption that they get caught one in 10 times or whatever but this is a sort of priced in cost and that seems to be going on with sort of some of the big smuggling enterprises certainly here in Ireland and in Britain at the same time the second question I'm wondering about is is about enforcement and I'm wondering because you had that you had those figures for public finance which are really quite striking I mean you know, even the comparable British and Irish figures are high but they're not they're 98 99 percent and what I'm wondering is does the just the sheer amount of government money revenue that's going to pay off the debt, does this mean that there's also less money for enforcement or do we see increased attempts to enforce anti-smuggling to maximise tax revenues? Which way does that work? As well as I'm, I'm curious about. <laughs> okay, so uh, let, let me begin with, with the last question about the yeah. enforcement and, and uh, the need for the Dutch to pay for that. No, the, 
um, the whole enforcement was paid by the French. The, um, the custom officers were, were what was a French organization, uh, was, was paid for by the central government, not by the Dutch, which, uh, 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 and um, the enforcement, um, uh, the efficiency uh, was, was increasing. Um, but it was increasing in a way that precluded more or less that people would really get caught because it was uh, the enforcement was 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 increased by permitting the custom officers to keep uh, part of the um, of the goods that were captured for themselves. So it was kind of bonus if 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 that's called and. Um, so uh, it is known that uh, French custom officers would 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 apprehend uh, would, would, would 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 see people smuggling and they would, would would scream, "Well, walk away, walk away! We don't want you. We want the goods." You know. So um, so there is a, a large part of the um, of, of of what was captured in the end. Uh, 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 was uh, was rec was was recorded, but uh, didn't people <laughs> were not fined for that. And then your question about the the risk, yeah. So it it might have been um, ten percent. Uh, I I really could have looked this up uh, what the, what the rates were, but uh, I think I I, I I so I'm 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 I, I forgot I, I forgot what the rates are, but but that's indeed something that that was being taken into account uh, but the goods that were being smuggled smuggled were usually uh very valuable goods so <laughs> colonial goods so uh not not coarse textiles but luxury textiles you know and with uh, coffee and sugar uh, uh, and tea and those um uh sugar uh, was 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 really very expensive and uh, um, uh, it, it was and, and luxury textiles uh, from from Britain from Britain they they ended up as uh, at the court uh, in uh, in Paris that uh, Josephine de Bournay is known to have uh, uh, have dressed herself in in dresses that were made from well from from illegal imported goods whereas napoleon did his best to to stimulate the silk industry of of france and in all ways and but you know everyone knew that this was going on and it it was more or less also well you know, more or less condoned or accepted or yeah yeah i'm not sure whether i answered all your yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, and I think that mirrors, I think, also, I think the yeah. Dublin and London establishments, likewise, are they're notorious yeah. for their high-end <laughs> French silks coming in. So I think it, it works both ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because, because those those illegal goods, they uh, they increased in price, you know, it, it mm. was it was all worthwhile. It was, it was uh, and, and it, it was really a regular business because the networks kept in place you know, for years, for years, for years, with the same intermediaries, with the same porters, with the same merchants. You know, so this this was uh, this was well for for them. It, it, 
they, they, they had their legal part, but they also had their illegal uh, networks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, now a number of questions coming in here. First question, um, when considering the Dutch West Indies company and their competition from Denmark, England and Spain, what was the extent of trade with the Atlantic world, particularly the Caribbean during the 18th and 19th century? And I suppose just adding to that, is there a, is this part of the difference between Amsterdam and Rotterdam? Is it the Atlantic trade part of the difference there? Mm, yeah, well, Amsterdam. Uh, Amsterdam was still the most important colonial uh, colonial hub. But uh, when you look at the East India trade, that was this was totally uh, dominated by 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 Amsterdam. Whereas the West Indian trade uh, was relative, relatively also more in towards Zeeland and 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 Rotterdam. It's it's very interesting to note that the first ship that sailed to the East Indies in 1814 was, uh, was, was from Rotterdam, was not for Amsterdam, you know, it, it, it was uh, the merchant Hoboken uh, who, who, who rose uh, to, to great prominence in Rotterdam. Uh, and he did so because during the Napoleonic period, he went to French ports or he sent agents to French ports to, 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 to buy up ships that were being confiscated for smuggling you know and he they would he, he built up a, a huge trading fleet uh, even though it could not be used directly but he just anticipated a time when, when uh, everything would return to normal okay that's interesting um <coughs> a question here then from casper cop um thank you for your fascinating presentation two questions one you found the centrality of bergen of zoom and i'm pronouncing that horribly wrong and breda in the smuggling network very noteworthy given the inclusion of those cities in the formal general generalitis london did the position of these cities in these semi-integrated peripheral regions increase their potential as smuggling centers even before the napoleonic period you might just take that question first Okay, so uh, generality lands uh, that that were the uh, the provinces that uh, were second rate during the time of the Dutch Republic. They were they had been conquered, reconquered from Spain, and they were had, did not have a seat in the States General, so they didn't have a political uh, representation. So they were kind of marginalized areas. And Bergen op Zoom, uh, I don't mind if you pronounce this Bergen op Zoom. I mean, we are zooming now. Indeed. Um, uh, but and Breda, they, uh, uh, they, they, they they really gained in prominence uh, because of the the new uh, political situation. Because they they uh, they with with the coming of the French, they were they became uh, they, they 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 got the, the similar sorry <coughs> similar political position as as the other provinces as the other towns. Uh, in addition, uh, 1795, the invasion of the French meant that uh, the Catholics were being emancipated. The Catholics could have uh, government offices, uh, so they could uh, become uh, city um, um, city uh, um, uh, rulers, for instance, also an urban council, sitting in the urban council, or be becoming a burgomaster. Uh, also, for Mennonites, could be that uh, Jewish. Like Moses Ezekiel uh, was was uh, was was Jewish, uh, and he nevertheless managed to um, at least his sons uh, managed to to become part of of the Rotterdam government. So yes, they rose to prominence, and I think 
um, it, 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 it has not so much to do, I think, with their previous position as generality lens, but they were just located near to the uh, rough area that was the border between uh, the southern and the northern Netherlands, which was uh, swampy and, 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 and he heaven, uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure whether I, <laughs> so it, uh, it, 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 it was really very rough countryside and uh, they, they were just the first major towns after that. <laughs> okay, we have another and another sort of regional question as well from Casper. Did the continental system have a major impact on those regions in the Netherlands, such as Groningen or over Zittel, which had weaker trading networks but were also less reliant on it? So, um, we do not have... Um, uh, really good sources to study this. Uh, we, we, we did study Rotterdam and uh, we, 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 we can think that, uh, that things were better, but we, we were not able to do that in a real quantitative way. But I have the idea that the um, Napoleonic period was much better for the inland uh, towns uh, or inland provinces like Groningen and Overijssel because uh, uh, overseas trade stopped and inland trade became much more important. Trade to Germany became much more important. Uh, trade to the Southern Netherlands became much more important. And uh, so there was, 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 there was a shift going on, I think, from, from opportunities. And uh, Overijssel is being, it, it, Overijssel started with, with the region of Twente with uh, developing a cotton industry, which was still very in its very first beginnings, but nevertheless became a major textile uh, producing area in the Netherlands after, uh, after Napoleon left. A question coming in here. Um, Throughout the presentation, you noticed that Amsterdam and Rotterdam diverged in terms of urban development and economic engagement in the aftermath of Napoleonic rule, the end of the continental system. Did this divergence continue or does Amsterdam rebound? So Amsterdam only gained its former um, number of inhabitants in 1850. So it was almost 40 years. Rotterdam continued to grow. Uh, it started to grow already in 1814, and it uh, it continued to grow. Uh, so by 1850, it, it was already a much larger competitor to Rotterdam. We did have the King of the Netherlands then. That was the Kingdom of the Netherlands, William the uh, First. He didn't see the potentiality of Rotterdam. He wanted to go back to the glorious days with Amsterdam as the center of, of, of international trade. He spent a lot of money constructing a canal for, for, for Amsterdam. Uh, but the Amsterdam Harbor never really recuperated. It was the Rotterdam Harbor that, that expanded, that, that continued. And Amsterdam never uh, managed to gain back its position in international river trade. Um, so. You still hear me because I see some things. I'm not sure. Sorry. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, I sorry. Okay. I think it's turned off. Yeah. I, 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 did, did I answer your question already or is it? Oh, I'm sorry. I 
Your and sound is, is fine. We just seem to have lost Patrick's uh, okay, okay. video. So. Okay, good. So let me think. Yes, so, so uh, Rotterdam and Amsterdam, it's still, it's still really competitive, competitive to each other, you know? Yeah. So are, can I see some questions and answers? Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, I temporarily lost connection. Okay, okay good, good. Yeah. Yeah, just picking up on that point you're making there about Amsterdam and I suppose the, and the king, is there an institutional story here where Rotterdam as an up and coming city with less traditional sort of institutions, a more diverse merchant body, you talked about the sort of modest origins of the um, your example case study even there, I think it's quite striking. Is this part of the story that Rotterdam is much more adaptable in terms of its merchant community, its institutions, it's less hidebound in the way that Amsterdam might have been? Is that, is that, is that a sort of reasonable summation? It is, it's still Rotterdam, it, it, they, they, they still talk the way like, I, 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 I'm telling you, but the only thing is that we didn't know that this already was also the case during the Napoleonic period, because this was a kind of, well, you know, no one really studied it because it's, it's, it's a very difficult time period because with all the regime changes all the time, you, the archives are, are really scattered and, uh, mm. and, and, and incoherent. And uh, so uh, but, uh, that's, that's a story we know now. So, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, but it, it's really in, in the same line. So Amsterdam is good for, you know, art. Uh, Amsterdam spends the money and Rotterdam makes the money. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's how it's told. Yeah. Uh, um, any other final questions here from our audience before we finish up? Maybe either wants to raise a hand there or post a question in the Q&A, please do. Hang on. Um, question here to have temporarily lost. Um, yeah, we have a question here from Graham Murdoch. Um, Thank you very much for your paper. Across the political changes of this period, um, should we imagine the local administrative officials remained in the in their posts? And do you think there were strong social links across the border? So social links with the southern border. Um, uh, well, uh, the, the, you, you did have merchant houses connections uh, between Antwerp and Rotterdam. You also had merchant houses between, uh, with connections between Antwerp and Amsterdam. Uh, so yeah, uh, the, the, those networks really, uh, uh, really existed. People remained more, more or less, you know, uh, the local, Local political um, people who ha had local political office. They after 70, 75, 95 was a kind of reshuffle, but thereafter uh, people continued uh, on their post. I'm not sure whether this is the answer or 
for this. I think another question coming in here. Um, yep. Again, a question here from Miholo Shokru. Um, could you say something more on the fate of the Dutch colonies at this time? Did they come under French control or retain some degree of autonomy, particularly in matters of trade? So they came under English uh, uh, control. The, Fran the French lost the connection to their own uh, colonies. Uh, uh, I, I mean, the, the, the real control of their own colonies was, was really hampered a, a lot. Now, the Dutch colonies were, were occupied by the British. And um, we, are, uh, we are thankful for the British to return <laughs> our colonies uh, uh, at the Peace of Versailles. Um, uh, was it Versailles? Oh, my God. No, Vienna. Vienna. Oh, Vienna. Oh, my God. Versailles was 1918, you know. Um, but um, the thing is that um, uh, in the meantime, uh, the English had such vested uh, connections already to the colonies that uh, Dutch traders hardly could compete with the English in the Dutch colonies. And uh, in addition, uh, Americans had taken over a lot of trade, a lot of uh, colonial trade. Uh, which they shipped the colonial goods to to Europe. Uh, so it took very and 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 the um, uh, the king of the Netherlands uh, didn't want to, um, to 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 interfere too much uh, in in this matter. So uh, the Dutch traders were really you know put on um, put 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 on second place by both the Americans and the British because in, in practice. You know, the, the British had had excellent uh, merchant uh, connections with with uh, on the colonies, and they 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 maintained them over there. Excellent. Um, thank you. I think I think that's all the questions that have come in. So I just want to thank um, Marjolaine again for an absolutely wonderful paper and so so full of detail. I think it stimulated a number of questions and certainly a number of comparative points come to mind as well. There's, Almost, um, which I think is quite striking. Um, <coughs> so I think just again, just to thank you in the usual fashion, to thank everybody for coming along, and to thank you all for coming along throughout this series this year. This has been a wonderful conclusion on it, to our series this year. So once again, thank you very much for your paper. And to thank everybody for their participation. We shall draw to a close there. Okay, thank you. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.